All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational personal personal purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network show and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 28th day of April 2020. I do like to remind you every week I publish a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. We focus on the junior mining sector primarily, not exclusively, but primarily. Uh, because that's where I think you can go now to to do well, to protect your wealth. It's one of the areas, gold for sure, gold starting with gold bullion, but also the mining shares I think have tremendous upside potential as uh, I believe that gold will continue to rise relative to other, and many other, if not most other assets. I'll also encourage you to go to uh, ChenPix.com to pick up a subscription to Chen Lin's letter, what is Chen buying, what is Chen Selling, and Michael Oliver, who is with us today, we'd like to always remind you of his great uh, service as well. It's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. And we do want to thank you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel, and also encourage you to continue sending along your questions, comments, whatever you might have to say about this show, good or bad or, or indifferent, send it along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com questions the number four taylor at gmail.com our sponsors for today which we are grateful to because without them there would be no show our sponsors for this week rn resources uh ely gold royalties great bear resources hunan metals uh hannon metals i should say irving resources novo resources and sitka gold corp i've titled today's show geopolitical and monetary impact of the hunan virus uh Jim Rickards, Michael Oliver, Chris Taylor are my guests today. The lockdown of the global economy resulted from the virus exported from China to the world. It has not only caused a large number of deaths throughout the world, but has triggered a global economic depression that many believe may rival or surpass that of the 1930s. Will the carnage left behind impact the currency uh, the current balance of power, I should say, between China and the United States? Uh, if so, what shape might that take? And as the Fed and other central banks around the world print infinite amounts of money, uh, at the same time, supply chains are disrupted by this virus, might the world be facing prospects for a massive increase in the cost of living? Might the status of the U.S. dollar as a world's reserve currency be in jeopardy? If so, what might take its place? Most importantly, how should each of us be preparing for what seems to be very uncertain times? 
Those are questions that I intend to pose to Jim Rickards in the second half of today's show. In just a few minutes from now, our first commercial, after our first commercial break, Chris Taylor, uh, the president of Great Bear Resources, will be with me to update us on that company's Dixie Project in the Red Lake District of Ontario, where Chris and his team have made what is perhaps one of the most significant new gold, high-grade gold discoveries in recent years. That stock has been one of my best performers of late, and so I'm eager to hear what Chris has to say about how the ongoing exploration work on the company's Dixie Lake project is progressing. Uh, but before we get to Chris, I'm happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is here. Michael's one of our more popular guests on this show, so thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. It's always good to have you, um, and as one of our uh, listeners suggested that we should have you on more often, he uh, we got an email from this listener uh, named Greg, and he mm-hmm. said the following. He says, is there any chance getting Michael Oliver on your show and finish your discussion? He talked about this. Uh, he talked about some of the states leaving the union and no further taxes because of money printing. I think you need to have him on a lot more and give him more time. Now, maybe you'll recall your, your, your remarks, uh, Michael, but I think that you have some real profound thoughts about what's happening in the markets and how that may affect uh, civil order or uh, perhaps civil disorder, unfortunately. Well, um, it's a broad, uh, broad situation, and it's coming together rapidly. Uh, first off, a little background on me as to why I, I think certain ideas outside of the str- specific technicals that we analyze. Sure. Um, I was, my background's philosophy, not markets. <laughs> and uh, I was heavily influenced in high school by reading Atlas Shrugged, among other books by Ayn Rand. And um, I frankly think right now that for those who've already read the book, we're in the third section of the book right now. There are three major sections. The third section is entitled A is A. And what happens in the third section is after decades and decades of statism and collectivism and all the errors that are compounded by that political, philosophical bent, uh, it finally comes undone because it's not in tune with reality or with man's nature. And therefore, all kinds of chaos ensues as the unraveling occurs. And it doesn't occur incrementally. It occurs rapidly like chaos theory, you know, instead of an incremental march up and an incremental march down, sometimes you get crashes. Mm-hmm. Well, not just in markets, but in uh, social political events as well. And I think we're there. I think we're on the edge of it. I don't think it's reversible. And uh, to some extent, it's, it's reality justice. But uh, there's all kinds of things going on outside the markets right now that will cause, of course, the central bank to go absolutely berserk. The OJ has gone berserk already. They said we're going to buy infinite bonds. doesn't matter now. There's no limit anymore. They changed the rules. I'm sure the ECB will go along, and I think Powell will go along. But uh, aside from the virus, which no doubt will pass at some point here soon and uh, cease to be the clear and present danger that everybody makes it out to be, and and it may come back in the fall type of thing, but the problem is that it caused, it, it revealed certain things under the surface, major debt problems, both government, corporate, municipal, state, personal, Um, certain unemployment problems such as uh, people having jobs later in their life than they expected, but they get a job and therefore they show up on the the employment rolls as opposed to unemployment. It's 
still having to work when they're 65 or 70. Uh, problems now with pension funds being funded. Uh, problems now with state governments being able to pay unemployment checks. We're very close to that crisis. And they can't print their own money. So uh, there's this debate going on in Congress now about whether we're going to fund them or not fund them. And the, the answer, of course, is they will fund them. There's no issue about it. Otherwise, you'll have violence uh, when people don't get their unemployment checks after a while. Um, so there's all kinds of things like that going on. Also, it's long been my view that <clears throat> secession, after all, you know, the U.S. isn't what it used to be anyway. It grew. It accumulated states. Uh, it began from nothing. It could go back to fragmented as well, um, not just on political grounds, but to economic grounds. And recently, we've had a couple of examples of that. They're very subtle, but I think they indicate the, the revelation of this, this trend and the, the, probably the use of the word secession at some point. Gavin Newsom, governor of California, has declared California repeatedly over the last month in various speeches to be a nation state. Mm-hmm. Uh, not an accidental statement. He's, he's repeating it, and I think he, with intent, uh, uh, California, Oregon, Washington have sort of unified in their rebellion against what uh, Trump is doing on the medical issues and so forth. We know that that's in the news. Also, uh, up in the Northeast, we have New York, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and various other states all there, that most, mostly run by Democrats. But they're rebelling against federal power, which is kind of interesting because liberal bias is generally against states' rights, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. They like the unity, and now they're actually rebelling to the point where Trump says, I'm not going to let you get away with this, so you can't be independent. (laughs) And he even mentioned the Mutiny on the Bounty movie. (laughs) Like, he's he's the cat, okay. Uh, But underneath the surface in these various events, pay attention, because their uh, fragmentation is going to occur politically, and not just statewide. It could be uh, countywide. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, for example, there's a county in, Cal- in uh, Colorado, biggest county in the United States in terms of size, Weld County. Mm-hmm. And it's also a major oil and, and uh, natural gas-producing county in the state. In fact, the biggest source of income for the state comes from that one county. Of course, now that county is probably in some trouble with the collapse in the oil industry. But back in 2013, the county commissioners actually discussed the issue of secession mm-hmm. because they felt they were being exploited on a tax basis by Colorado, that the, their money was being contributed to the pot but didn't come back to Well County. They began to discuss it again in 2018. Now, you know, I'm sure there's other counties around the country that based on this issue or that issue are not happy with the state they're in. For example, West Virginia has invited some of the western counties of Virginia to join West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Part of the issue there has been uh, the gun control laws coming down from uh, uh, state capital in, in Richmond. Right. Um, and so there's all kinds of points of fragmentation that are being exaggerated and uh, brought up to the surface by these events, economic events, that have yet to reveal themselves. Uh, I don't just mean the, the unemployment, but the, uh, think about it for a minute. You have this rally recently in, in some a very limited number of the Internet and tech stocks. Some made new highs like Amazon. Most didn't, but they were strong. Okay, Very narrow number of stocks, like five or so. Meanwhile, the auto industry has already been in major decline, not just in stock market, but in data points for the last couple of years. And now they're facing a depression. The oil industry is now in a depression, and our technical work on oil suggests that, well, yeah, you can make a low in oil here that may last forever, 
and, and make some money on the upside, you're not going to get oil prices up to levels that will reverse that negative uh, corporate situation for the, a lot of these companies. So you may rally oil up to the mid-30s, upper 30s. We think that's entirely possible over the next year. Those still aren't levels that are breathable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's other industries, you know, well, Boeing is in big trouble for other reasons. Uh, but a lot of events are going to happen and trends are happening that won't be reversed by any near-term betterment than the, the virus issue. Right. Um, well, Trump's well, argument that, oh, we're going to go, you know, this is going to take off, it's nonsense. First off, we never yeah. took, we weren't where he thought we were in the first place. Exactly, we're sitting for on sure. sitting top of, a, yeah. of an 11, 12-year-old bubble financed by central banks, both here, mm-hmm. Japan, and Europe. Uh, so it wasn't, quote, his economy. For all, most of that bull market occurred under Obama. So what do we call it, the Obama bull market? <laughs> no, it was a central bank bull market. Right, exactly. Uh, so anyway, then, a lot of these big events are happening, and I think gold is going to be a huge benefactor, beneficiary of this. And I think gold miners are going to be on top of that. Uh, we, no, I, we, go ahead. I have to ahead, think Jay. so. I have to, I, yeah, I have to think so, Michael. Uh, I want to ask you, though, uh, how does uh, technically how does GDX look to you now? Great, <laughs> XAU okay. as well. GDX uh, momentum wise, the miners are in great shape. We thought the sell off in March it was a three and a half day sell off. By the way, if you go back and examine it carefully, it was a collapse. Mm-hmm. The gold mining investors thought, oh, we're part of the stock market. Oh my gosh, we're going to go down with the stock market, and they did. But they created a bear trap, trapped themselves. Uh, and the market V-bottomed out of there. Next thing you know, you're in new highs for the last seven years. All the highs have been 31 plus, 31 plus, 31 plus for the GDX. We reached 32 two weeks ago. Now we're trading 34. Mm-hmm. XAU yeah. didn't quite get that breakout two weeks ago, but it got it last week. Comparable. Seven years of highs taken out, flat highs. I think the gold miners now are being perceived, and look at their daily tone as well. You look at the action. Gold drops 10, 20 bucks intraday. GDX hardly flinches now. Yeah. Yeah. It tells me that big investors, fund managers, are getting into this area. After all, what do you have? You have a rising commodity that they produce, and it's at high levels, historically yeah. versus any currency, nearing its old high in, of 2011 in the U.S. dollar terms. And they have the lowest energy prices, which is their main cost exactly. of production. In exactly. Exactly. All right, Michael, we're just, we're just about out of time. Let me quickly ask you, uh, with regard to the equity market, you've long held that in order for the, uh, for the bull market in the gold shares and everything else, of the gold shares and gold itself, to really explode, you think we have to see money coming out of the equity market. And, of course, equities, have, they're hanging in there pretty well. I mean, technically, they look weak, I believe, from your work. But nonetheless, uh, do you, what do you see for the equity for the S and P's? I, I suspect from? either soon or maybe it'll take a few few more months after the twenty nine crash. It was like a six month rally, yeah. and uh, even Herbert Hoover declared what Trump declared. Oh, it's it's all over, you know, uh, a rollover. But I don't expect any more panic in the rollover. If the stock market rolls over and goes for a wipeout, which like the dot com bubble did or the 29 market did. It took it two years, and it was never a crash after the first crash. It was an incremental arm-wrestling bear market with mm-hmm. nice little rallies that didn't mean anything, but they effectively uh, took price to zero. Not quite, but you know what I mean. When you take the Dow mm-hmm. from the upper 300, so like in 29 to 40, yes, in a couple of yes. years, that's a wipeout. Same yes, with the dot-com bubble. So 
that's what we're looking for, and we're trying to time an intermediate rollover that indicates that this rally is spent and over with, and uh, so mm-hmm. far we're not there, but we're okay. seeing some evidence of it. All right. Well, I should tell my listeners that you provide ongoing uh, ongoing information along these lines with, with multiple markets, many different markets, and you keep people really up to breast uh, on your momentum work, which really usually leads the equity uh, the prices. So, uh, Michael, I want to thank you so much for spending your time with us again. Always valuable to have you with us, and uh, we'll look to check in with you in a couple of weeks again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. All, all right, folks. Well, we've got to go to break, but don't go away. Chris Taylor, the president of Great Bear Resources, will be with us to give us an update on the Dixie Project, which is, uh, as I said earlier, uh, one of the more successful, perhaps one of the most significant new gold discoveries in recent years. So, don't go away. We'll be right back with Chris Taylor. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts, experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Chris Taylor, the president of Great Bear. He's also a member of the board of directors of that company. Uh, he is a structural geologist who's uh, had a lot of success so far in his young career. Uh, he is also working with another company that I cover in my newsletter called Dunham and Ventures, which is a, has a very promising, uh, it's more of a porphyry copper gold uh, story, which uh, I think that that has a good shot as well. But we're here, of course, to talk to Chris today about Great Bear. Um, thanks for joining me again, Chris. Great to speak with you again, Jay. It's really good to have you. Uh, I should mention to our listeners, for those that I think most of them, or a lot of them, certainly know your story by now, know something about it. Uh, trading at nine dollars and fifty-four cents in Canadian money a little while ago for only forty-six million shares outstanding, which is pretty amazing for all that the company's accomplished so far. Uh, you can buy it in Canada under GBR, or you can buy it down here in the States, as I have, under the symbol GTBDF. And uh, down here in U.S. money is selling at around six and a half bucks uh, when I checked it before we went on the show. Uh, Chris, we were just talking at the break, and you were suggesting that um, you were sort of agreeing with what Michael had to say, and that is that uh, the institutions are really getting excited about gold stocks. You're saying that you're getting banks and, and firms, investment firms, wanting to buy your stock, wanting to put money into your into your story. And I know that your story is better than most, better than 
I would, yeah, I think that's a fair statement, better than most. But nonetheless, you're seeing a tremendous desire for money to enter into the sector, I guess. This is really the first time in 10 years that I've seen this sort of uh, broad-level interest in gold. And I'm getting calls uh, regularly now. Uh, and this is from uh, banks and other investment institutions. And uh, they're, they're talking about openly, you know, they have individual investors, wealthy individuals that are putting, uh, you know, $10 million, $20 million, $30 million per check into uh, good quality gold stories. It's, it appears that gold has finally uh, got a strong tailwind. Uh, so this is something I'm really curious to see how it plays out because uh, the big mining companies are at all-time uh, highs right now or uh, recent all-time highs. And companies like ours, Great Bear, um, you know, we went from uh, getting sold down to about half of our value in the panic during the COVID yeah. uh, immediate, you know, uh, hands in the air, run for the hills panic. And now we're back up where we were uh, prior to the COVID situation even happening. And I would imagine, given the interest in the sector, that uh, this is still early days for the gold stock rally that might be coming. I sure think that's the case, Chris. Uh, time will tell, but that's certainly, I know that's what Michael believes. Uh you mentioned COVID-19. Is, how is that impacting your business, if at all? Well, we have to uh, effectively stick with only local labor on our project. Uh, you know that our property is located right off the side of the highway, just outside of the town of Red Lake, Ontario. It's a big mining district. So we have to uh, basically furlough uh, all the geologists and technicians that we had that didn't live locally. Uh, so if you could drive in, if you live in Red Lake or could drive to the project, we're happy to have you working there still. And that means we went from about uh, five drill rigs uh, drilling all the time, 24-7, uh, to three drill rigs, 24-7. So we're still on track to finish our drill program by the end of the year, but it'll probably finish up around Christmas instead of around Halloween. So a little bit of delay, but really everything, uh, all considering, everything's uh, going along, um, you know, full steam. Very good. Well, I want to ask you about your drill program and the progress that's being made there, but before we get to that, Chris, I'd like to ask you about this royalty spin-out. It's one thing that I've been looking forward to, and I've, I've said that I don't care uh, how much money I've made in the shares I've purchased of Great Bear. Uh, I'm going to hold all of them until I get uh, the royalty spin-out. Now, you, I guess that's in the works now, isn't it? And, and explain to us, perhaps, yeah. uh, once again, why you've decided to do this. Okay, yeah, no problem. Yeah, effectively, if you're a shareholder of record uh, before the 4th of May, I don't know how many days it takes to clear a share purchase if you were to buy it today. I would imagine it would be in time today, tomorrow. Uh, but um, if you're a shareholder of record by about May the 4th, uh, you'll receive a dividend uh, share in a private uh, company that will own a 2% net smelter royalty on the gold discovery that we've made. What what that means is that in the future, uh, if the project is as successful as we think and hope uh, that it will be, uh, that royalty ultimately could be worth something along the lines of what Great Bear as a company is worth today. And certainly major discoveries like uh, what we've made here have formed the basis of large royalty companies. These are multi-billion dollar companies as they grow over time. And the cash flow streams uh, that you can generate from a royalty like uh, this I mean, at the moment, at our current stage of operation, it's not worth very much, you know, but in the future, it could be worth a great deal. We wanted to make sure that it was our shareholders that received that benefit going forward, just because, you know, in the current mining cycle uh, with the large producers of the world feeling so rich and empowered to make acquisitions, 
uh, we wanted to protect some of that future value for our shareholders so that if we end up uh, getting taken over, for instance, um, our shareholders will still benefit. Benefit from a, what is a fantastic project. And, uh, you know, the, you don't have a resource yet, and I know you're, you're starting to work on that. Uh, so far, the stock, at first you had those really sort of narrower traditional high-grade vein systems, uh, uh, the, 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 the LP fault, I guess, uh, no, not the LP, the, uh, the hinge zone, the, tfer- the first two uh, traditional uh, deposits, uh, 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 intersections that you drilled into, very high-grade, got retail uh, people very excited, the stock shot out, it really shot up, and then uh, then you made this LP discovery, this LP fault discovery, which is really yeah, much bigger, much more, uh, much more exciting, I think, to the professional investors. But you have the chance of putting something together, really big numbers, really big numbers of ounces in a lower grade, uh, spiked with higher grade intersections as well, which is really what's making this an exciting story longer term. But what are you doing now? I mean, it's so what I'm getting at, the stocks seem to have been driven early on by these great numbers, these high-grade discoveries, and you're still having high-grade discoveries, but now you're more, I think, concerned about putting together some real numbers that analysts can chew on and investors can start to put some, uh, some value on, right? Is that what you're doing now? Yeah, correct. Um, what we found so far with this LP fault uh, that you're alluding to, um, it's getting close to uh, the mining ideal. And this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, uh, if you can bear with me. But, you know, the ideal gold mine is a stack of gold bars sitting on the surface, preferably on property <laughs> that you control and you have a gun and you can protect that. So that's the ideal gold mine. I mean, that's high-grade gold on the surface. What we found with Great Bear is high-grade gold that goes right to the surface. So obviously, mm-hmm. it's still in the ground. We're in the mining business, not the uh, owning a bank uh, vault business. Uh, but uh, it's the closest thing. It's high-grade gold that goes right to the surface. You don't have to drill it down to great depths. And what the market, what the investment market is so interested in is the fact that that high-grade gold is so shallow. Because uh, gold, with its current pricing and the history of mining around the world, well, most of the high-grade gold that's, that, that's as shallow or to the surface like we found, most of it's already gone. I mean, mm-hmm. it's now holes in the ground, and the gold is extracted, and it's sitting in jewelry or it's sitting in bank vaults. Uh, to make a find like this in, uh, you know, 2018, 2017, 2019, uh, those years when we made the initial discoveries, uh, it's really, really rare in, in the modern world to find this sort of grade near surface. So the investment bankers that are uh, basically accumulating share positions in Great Bear now are just looking to see the continuity on the zones. Like, do you have uh, a bit of gold here and then a bit of gold 20 meters away and then a bit of gold, you know, 100 meters away from that? Uh, the answer in the drilling that we're seeing is, no, it looks like it's a continuous mineralized zone and we consistently generate shallow, high-grade gold intercepts. So it seems to be the best of all worlds when it comes to grade and proximity to surface. And there's a lot of drilling. I mean, just this year, we're going to complete over 300 drill holes. So, you know, as we say, the proof is in the pudding. So you can hype it and wave your arms all you want. But if the good gold numbers keep coming out of Great Bear like they have been, I think, um, you know, uh, for us, uh, you end up effectively in this gold cycle painting a bit of a target on your back for where do these big producers replace the uh, the ounces that they're mining out of the ground every single day 
they have smaller reserves, where do they go to get the highest grade, shallowest, you know, presumably most economic replacements? And uh, it looks like we're onto something just like that. Yeah, well, a target on your back, and again, that's why you decided to put that royalty spin out uh, together. And uh, you know, I really applaud you for that. But let, let's to give our listeners a sense of this of the scope of this thing, Chris. I believe that you're you're infill drilling now, which is what the the analysts want to see uh, because they want to be able to put some economic value together here. We're talking about something like four or five kilometers in strike length, I think. And and can you give us some idea of the width of this LP structure? The depth as well? Okay. Uh, yeah, to give you an idea, I mean, the average gold deposit in the world, it's a hard number to put together, uh, but I would, I would guess an average based on mines that I've been involved with would be probably 100 meters long, uh, generally a few meters wide. Uh, sometimes you can get a really lucky one, and over the course of a kilometer, you might have two or three zones that are 100 meters, 200 meters long, and uh, several meters wide. With what we're looking at, the zone is uh, minimally four to five kilometers long, and the width, I mean, it swells as it gets towards the, sec- uh, the center of the system, and at its widest, it's over 500 meters wide. Uh, that's the zone of uh, gold mineralization, the right rocks, the alteration. Uh, we put it out on all of our cross-section data. You can look at it on our website at uh, www.greatbearresources.ca if you like. Um, mm-hmm. What you see is up to 500 meters wide, four to five kilometers long, and it simply dwarfs uh, most of the other gold deposits in the world. The biggest ones, the big mines, uh, the largest mine in Canada, which is a 12 million ounce open pit at about one gram per ton, uh, that's about 3.5 kilometers long. That was purchased for about uh, almost $4 billion uh, Canadian. We're looking at something that has a bigger surface footprint than that, and has more high grade that goes to the surface in the drilling that we've done. So I can't say that it's worth $4 billion. I, I don't know what it's worth until we finish drilling it. But if you want to compare apples to apples, you've got to compare what we've found to some of the big gold deposits in the world. These are multi-million ounce producers, and I think that's why uh, we've captured the interest of the market. And as I said, the proof's in the pudding. Just follow the drill results as they keep coming out. Right. Well, Chris, how soon might we start to get some more of these infill numbers? And how soon, you know, what, what are you hoping to do? And when are you hoping to have a resource calculation together for the market? I would say on the resource calculation side, uh, you're looking at about um, roughly about a year from now, uh, simply because the zone is so large that just to drill a regular grid over top of it, is going to take more than 300 drill holes, and even with multiple drill rigs going, that just takes many months uh, to drill. That's simply a function of the size. Uh, so I would have to say, uh, in terms of upcoming news, what you'll see, uh, because we've been drilling throughout the COVID situation, uh, we, haven't, we haven't stopped, uh, there's a lot of news uh, that's coming back from the labs in probably a short period of time. So I would guess uh, that there'll be quite a bit of results news out of Great Bear over the next uh, month to six weeks. Right, and a lot of the uh, professionals will start to put some numbers together in their own heads even uh, even before perhaps you, you come out with your own. With about 30 seconds left, uh, what are you doing in terms of exploration? I know that you had in your plans some exploration work. Ron Shore, former mining analyst, uh, asked me about a geophysical target in the northwestern portion of your project. Uh, could you talk about that or perhaps what are your plans overall in terms of exploration or are they just basically on hold now as you focus on trying to pull a, a resource together? 
I think to answer that quickly, there are many additional targets on the project. It seems like it's hard to find an area where you don't find some gold mineralization. Most likely what will happen is we'll stick to the current known zones until we get back to, uh, you know, five drill rigs, back to full drill capacity, and then one of those rigs will be doing some new zone exploration as we proceed through the year. At the moment, to optimize, uh, you know, potential returns for investors, we're focusing exclusively on drilling off the continuity and the size of the zones we know about because I think that's what the market uh, will, reward, will reward us for. I think that's right. Well, thank you very much, Chris. We are out of time. Very exciting. I look forward to keeping up with you on an ongoing basis with this story. It's really one of my favorites for obvious reasons. We like winners, and thank you so much for spending your time with us. All right, folks, well, we do have to go to break now. Don't go away. Jim Rickards will be with us, and uh, he'll have, some, I think, some very important things to say about how uh, this uh, period of chaos might fold out and uh, what you need to do to prepare for it. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Jim Records. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer, wholly-owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario. Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete a very active 200,000-meter drill program through to the year 2021. Stay up to date on what has been considered one of the best performing exploration stocks in the last two years by visiting greatbearresources.ca. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Jim Rickards. He's been on this show a number of times before, um, and he's very well known as a New York Times bestseller. A bunch of books that he's written, uh, several of which that I have read, and uh, we want to talk to Jim about some of those uh, ideas that he's passed along over the years that now are seeming to come into fruition. Thanks for joining me today, Jim. Great to be with you, Jay. It's really good to have you with us. It's always a treat to have you, I might say. Uh, you know, we, we've titled today's topic, How Might This Latest China Virus, or let's say a Hunan Virus, or COVID-19, impact the geopolitical and global monetary landscape? And that's something I'd certainly like to get your ideas about. But I've read several books that you've written in the past, like The, the Road to Ruin, The Death of Money, Currency Wars, and Aftermath, Aftermath being your latest. You discussed how the existing dollar-based fractional reserve monetary system is heading for the dustbin of history. In aftermath, though, you talked about seven secrets of wealth preservation in the coming chaos, and certainly seems to be 
while things maybe aren't chaotic yet, uh, it seems to be the potential for that to take place. So unless you think that the uh, Hunan virus, uh, with that, that the cat is out of the bag and it's just too late to talk about those things, or if it's too late to really get ready for chaos, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but uh, I'd like to, to ask you that. Um, do you think it's too late? Are there still things that people can do, or is this thing uh, coming unglued very rapidly? Um, there are things that you could have done six months or a year ago that would have left you better off today. Having said that, there are still plenty of things you can do that will leave you better off tomorrow. This uh, crisis uh, is far from over. Um, we have a, a double crisis. One is the uh, Wuhan virus, uh, which is still spreading, still killing people tragically. Um, it Things seem to be getting a little better although in the United States although I have to say you know better is a relative term there's still a lot of fatalities but a lot of the people uh, a lot of the fatalities appearing today are people who were infected two or three weeks ago um, but in terms of new hospital admissions that's going down so hopefully this will get better and we'll start to see some significant progress by the middle of May uh, there's by the way there's some pretty good applied mathematical modeling behind that forecast that, that would say, and I know models are kind of out of favor these days, a lot of the, a lot of the models aren't very good, but uh, I, I don't, uh, people think I, I dislike models, actually, I only dislike bad models, I like good ones, um, and of course the hard part is telling one from the other, but some of the best models suggest that this disease does run its course, um, and that the May 15th kind of reopening of the United States, a lot of governors have subscribed to that, not all of them, but a lot, uh, will will happen as expected. It doesn't mean the, the virus goes away, doesn't mean there aren't more infections and fatalities, but it, it, it gets a little bit under control, at least relative to where we've been. So that's the good news. The bad news is that the economic damage uh, has, is just beginning. Uh, we haven't even seen the statistics. I mean, we're not, we, we have some, we have some anecdotal evidence. We have weekly initial claims for unemployment. We know that uh, upwards of 30 million Americans have lost their jobs in the last uh, six weeks. And, and just to put that in perspective, that's about 20% of the entire workforce. Uh, so you're looking at numbers that are actually worse than the Great Depression. Um, I, I tell people, you know, you can't look at the 2008 financial crisis or even the you know the 2000 dot com bust or the 1998 global financial crisis. None of those are are good baselines for understanding what's happening now. Uh, you have to go back at least to 1929 and the Great Depression, maybe even further back. Um, in some ways, you know, back to the the 14th century and the Black Death. But uh, to to put this in perspective, so uh, good news is the the coronavirus is um, seeming to run its course, even though it's still out there. The bad news is that the economic damage has just begun, and it will be horrific, and it will last a very long time. So what that means, to answer your first question, is, yeah, there are still things you can do because markets have not fully uh, priced or adjusted for what's coming. Okay, well, I want to ask you about some of those. You had seven ideas that I thought were very, uh, many of them still apropos, and I'd like to, to, get, to talk about that. But before we go to that, I, one other question. Uh, that I have uh, concerning the existing dollar currency system. An article in Reuters this morning, uh, the president of Shanghai Gold Exchange, Wang Zhenyang, uh, called for a new super sovereign currency to offset the global dominance of the U.S. dollar, which he predicted would decline long term while gold prices continue to rally. He, 
he cited several problems with the existing system. He said rising instability of the dollar, which he believes is going to occur. Uh, he says it can be used as a weapon against other currencies in other countries. In other words, the U.S. having the world's reserve currency has been, of course, using this against Russia, against Iran, other countries to freeze the other countries' assets. And I think there's been some talk recently about uh, doing that to the Chinese uh, once they find out if, in fact, uh, this uh, – well, I, I think there's a lot of anger towards the Chinese right now, whether it's warranted or not. That's – uh, you know, I don't know, you might have some opinions on that, but at least the point he's making is that the U.S. having the world's reserve currency can use it as a weapon and hurt a lot of countries, and, uh, and they, you know, understandably some other countries don't like that so much. He thinks that we need a neutral currency like gold, but he says there just isn't enough gold in the world to make that possible, which I, I think that's uh, not a good argument. But... Um, he basically saying we need a super sovereign currency that's that's not political. Uh, he didn't explain how we would get there, but I know that you've given a lot of thought to this. You've talked about the IMF um, and the possible uh, SDRs again as a step in that direction. Uh, but what are your thoughts right now? Because it seems to me what could be unleashed here could start to get people thinking seriously about what you've been talking about along these lines for a number of years. Well, I have been talking about it for a long time, going back to my first book, 2011, <clears throat> pardon me, um, called Currency Wars, and then yeah. I followed that thread through The Death of Money and uh, the Chapter 1 of The Road to Ruin in 2016, talked about ICE-9, which is basically freezing all the accounts and exchanges. Uh, also in 2016, I had my book, The New Case for Gold, which uh, tried to, uh, actually did blow up some of these myths about gold. So as far as... Um, our, our chairman, I take it of the, the Shanghai Gold Exchange, mm-hmm. um, he wants a super sovereign currency. Well, we already have one. We've had it since 1969. It's called the Special Drawing Right. It's world money, uh, SDR for short, uh, Special Drawing Right. It's issued by the IMF. Uh, it can be printed, uh, in effect, by the IMF in unlimited quantities. They have a, you know, people know the Fed has a printing press. They can print dollars. Well, the IMF has a printing press. They can print these SDRs um, and give them out to their members. So there's a very deep, uh, you know, theoretically unlimited uh, pool of liquidity uh, waiting in the wings. So, so that currency already exists. The idea that there's not enough gold to have, whether it's a strict gold standard or a gold reference or some use for gold in the monetary system is is just wrong. Uh, there's always enough gold. It's just a question of price. Right. Now, if you take the 33,000 official tons at today's market price of around you know $1,710 an ounce, give or take a little bit, um, and, it does, and it does bounce around. Uh, that's not enough money supply to support world trade or world commerce. But if you increase the price to ten thousand dollars an ounce, it is that that you know thirty three thousand tons times ten thousand dollars an ounce comes up to about uh, nine point four trillion, which would be forty percent. Sorry, nine point six trillion, which would be forty percent of the twenty four trillion M um, one money supply. So there's always enough gold. It's just a question of getting the price right. The, and so by raising the price, the same quantity of gold would support a much larger monetary system. Now, there's not one central banker in the world who wants to do that. 
There's probably not one PhD economist in the world who wants to do that. So I'm not saying that there's any support for this. But if you're, <clears throat> pardon me, if you're asking whether it's possible, um, it is possible. And we've been there before. We were on a gold standard in the past. Uh, SDRs have been around, by the way, since 1969. There's nothing new about them. Uh, they were not issued for um, 30 years, between 1980 and 2009, almost 30 years, 29 years. Um, there was an issue in 2009. I think I might have been the only one who noticed, um, but it wasn't that big. It was about $250 billion equivalent. But there is talk today um, uh, among members of the IMF, among prominent economists, that, yeah, now's the time to do a big issue. Um, the Financial Times has suggested about $1.3 trillion equivalent, or you know, roughly uh, $1 trillion SDRs. Do it now, hand it out to the members, uh, and then they can actually take those SDRs, every country, because every country would get some, there are 188 members, they would all get some according to their quotas, it would be pro rata. Um, then they can take those SDRs, put them in a special purpose vehicle, and then leverage them up 10 to one, so they'd be issuing new debt using those SDRs as a capital cushion, so it would be like a 188 banks, I guess, and you could buy all those bonds. So you, you could do that fairly, fairly easily. Um, mm -hmm. It's not going to happen, uh, and here's why. The United States has veto power at the IMF. You need 85% of the votes at the IMF to do anything of this significance. The United States uh, keeps about uh, has about a 17% vote. Uh, so in other words, and that's not a coincidence, by the way, that's enough to veto anything because if the U.S. says no, then all the other members combined if, can only get to 83%. They can't get to 85%. Why does the U.S. not want to issue SDRs right now? Well, this is... Uh, this is uh, the answer is political, uh, and again, our chairman of the Shanghai Stock Exchange says, you know, I'd like a super sovereign currency that's not political. Well, good luck with that. All currencies, all currencies are political because they're controlled by governments. Um, and uh, but but the U.S. would stop it. But here's why: if you did what I just described, uh, say a trillion SDRs handed out to the members, China would get some, and Iran would get some, and the United States is completely opposed to any financial assistance to China or Iran. So we will say no, not for economic reasons, but for geopolitical reasons, because we don't want the Iranians to get any uh, any relief, and we don't want the Chinese to get any relief. Mm. Well, um, Jim, this is the way the structure is now at the, at the IMF. Uh, the U.S. has all those votes. What could threaten that? Well, the IMF, every uh, five years, they do what they call a quota review, and they think about, you know, perhaps increasing the shares of certain members. But I think, and that's, there's one underway now. It's kind of a rolling review. Um, but even when they decide on recommended quotas, executive order recommends quotas, you still have to go back to the members and get it approved. And so the last time they were, they were trying to get something done in, uh, I think, 2010, uh, there was a 2010 quota review, and it took, uh, until um, you know, years later to actually get it done. So, uh, so it's not a quick process. But again, the U.S. has veto power over that, uh, and um, I'm I'm quite sure the U.S. would not allow its percentage to go under 15%. In other words, if China was going to get more, and they might because they're they've 
they're, they're a bigger part of the global economy, so in theory they deserve a bigger quota. They'll take it away from Belgium or the Netherlands or somebody, you know, Norway or somebody, but they won't take it away from the United States. So, um, so other members can get more with these quota reviews. They don't happen quickly. They don't happen often, and the U.S. can stand in the way. So, again, the U.S. has pretty good blocking power when it comes to the IMF. So you don't see any changes there in, in the foreseeable future. You think it's status quo for the dollar. The dollar gets weaker. Uh, what, well, how should we look at it as investors going forward? It's a really good question because people talk all the time about the, the dollar getting stronger and the dollar getting weaker as if they knew what they were talking about. And, <laughs> and the question is, what do you compared to what? Yeah. Um, so most for most people, I mean, seriously, for there are three main indices people use. One is DXY or Dixie, which is a futures contract, and that's a currency basket. Um, there's the Bloomberg has an index again, another currency basket, and they publish that. And then the Fed has one. That's the one I use. It's called the Broad a Real Trade Weighted Index, and uh, and and I use that in in my own research. And they will all show, you know, the dollar getting stronger or weaker, but it's always compared to other currencies, mainly the euro, not exclusively. You know, you got the yen and uh, pound sterling and a couple other currencies in there, but it's mostly the euro, U.S. dollar cross rate. And so everyone says, well, we want to, um, you, know, you know, so by those measures, yes, the dollar is strong. But the problem is all the currencies together are like passengers in a lifeboat. You know, the Titanic sank. Um, These people got in a lifeboat. They have no food, no water. Now you can go around the passengers and say, hey, you're you're a little stronger than this guy or you're taller than uh, he is or she's taller than somebody else. Um, So you can make comparisons, but you miss the bigger picture, which is you're all in the same boat. Um, If you want to think about whether currencies are getting stronger or weaker, you have to compare them to gold ask yourself how much is an ounce of gold denominated in whatever currency it is and that's your best metric and the reason is because um, gold is not um, it's not a it's a form of money for sure but it's not issued by a central bank it's not subject to you know massive uh, trillion dollar uh, printing exercises etc so what's going on right now well the dollar is strong against the euro and the yen and emerging market currencies that's true but it's getting weaker relative to gold. So if you ask me, is the dollar getting stronger or weaker? I would say it's clearly getting weaker, but it's important to understand my my measuring stick or yardstick is a little different than most people's because gold is the only objective measure of a currency strength. No, that's uh, no doubt about it, which then brings me to uh, your uh, seven secrets uh, in your in your last book. And one of those was uh, number six, was prepare for assets-backed currencies with physical gold. Um, so I guess that's what, obviously that's what people should do. And if you think, uh, I mean, do you think you mentioned $10,000 is what we would need? What What is your outlook for gold, Jim, right now? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's not that gold it gains any value. It's that the currencies continue to depreciate that, relative to gold. Right? That's, the, that's the point. And so you know, the strong dollar talk um, is is it's either nonsense or you know you're comparing it to other currencies uh but the dollar is actually getting a lot weaker by the day because the dollar price of gold is going up so um here's another thing most people haven't really tuned into jay we're in the third great bull market in history for gold uh the reason i say that prior to 1971 as far back as the 1870s but you can go as far back as uh you know, uh, two or three thousand uh, BC, 
Um, gold, there was no gold standard. I mean, gold was money. Uh, yeah. You walked around with it. You had gold sovereigns. You put them in a purse and put them in the safe and took it to India with you and you got there and it was money good. Now, since um, uh, the 1870s going forward, yes, there was a, there were different kinds of gold standards, three different ones. One broke up around 1914. One uh, lasted through the 20s and 30s and then the Bretton Woods after 1944. Uh, but it wasn't until 1971 that you really had a free market in gold because, uh, you know, when gold when you're on a gold standard, the price of gold doesn't change. That's the whole idea of a gold standard. I always run into gold fans or gold bugs or whatever you call them, and they say, you know, they bang the table and say, I want a gold standard. I say, well, be careful what you wish for because you won't make any money on a gold standard because it means the price is fixed. The time to make money is when you don't have a gold standard and you can actually – as an individual, go out and buy gold in the free market and benefit from the appreciation. So, so you start in 1971. So the first bull market went from 1971 to January 1980, and gold went up 2,600%. It went from $35 an ounce to $800 an ounce. The second bull market went from August 1999 to August 2011. Gold went up 670%. It went from $250 an ounce to $1,900 an ounce. Now you had some bear markets. So 1980 to 1999 was it was a long, drawn-out, slow bear market where gold fell from $800 to $250. Then you had another bear market, much sharper and, and faster, from 2011 to 2015, where gold fell from $1,900 an ounce to $1,050 an ounce. But you can pinpoint the you can pinpoint the end of that bear market. It was December 16th, 2015. Gold was $1,050 an ounce. It had fallen. If you work off the $250 base from 1999, it had fallen 50%. And I had a conversation once with Jim Rogers, I'm sure you know, with sure. one of the most famous commodities traders of all time. And he said to me, he said, Jim, nothing, we both see gold going much higher. But he said, Jim, nothing goes to the moon in commodities without a 50% retracement along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, got it, that makes sense. Well, we've had that. When when gold went from $1,900 uh, off a of 250 base down to $1,050, that's a 50% retracement, almost to the penny. Uh, so that's behind us. And then the third bull market began. Now, since December 16, 2015, gold is up over 70%. You know, $1,050 an ounce to $1,710 an ounce. So it's up 70% in the last five years, and or it's four and a half years. And people say to me, Jim, when's when's the bull market in gold going to start? And I said, well, it's, <laughs> it, started, it started four years ago. It's just that sentiment was so bad. People were so discouraged, and they were so beaten down by the bear market that they failed to notice that we were in a new bull market. Now, so you've missed four years of, of gains, at, and we're up 70%. Having said that, um, I expect gold to be at um, ten thousand, sorry, uh, fourteen thousand dollars an ounce by twenty twenty five. Now that's just as simple. I say, what's the model for that? Because I don't make these things up. That's a simple average of the last two bull markets. So the first bull market lasted nine years. The second bull market lasted twelve years. So just take the average of nine and twelve, and you get ten and a half. So ten and a half forward from two thousand fifteen gets you out to two, uh, you know, twenty twenty five. 
and then take the gains, you know, 2,600% and 670% um, and average them and they come out around 1,400%. Mm-hmm. So that would put gold at $14,000 an ounce by, you know, late 2025. That's not All right. Uh, so, but my point is it could be $2,000 an ounce by early 2021. So this sure. this thing still has a long way to go. All right. Very good. Jim, we'll have to leave it go with that. We're out of time already. It's inf- unfortunate. Uh, so much more to ask you. But do you have any books coming out? Any new Anything new you might be writing soon? Well, uh yeah, I'm working on a book actually on what we've been talking about the well, uh, the, you know, the the new depression. Uh, it'll be out in uh, July. I'll have a, a lot more to say about it when we get a little closer to the publication date. But I'm actually working on that book now. But my book after aftermath, which came out last November, I think is still very timely in terms of preparing for what's going to come. Excellent, very good. Thank you so much, Jim, for being with us. Uh, that is all the time we have this week, folks. Next week, Dan Oliver and Chen Lin will be with me. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Oren Resources is an exploration company defined by its aggressive ambition to find to find the world's largest mines. Oren has raised over $100 million in this effort and believes it is on to three major discoveries at its projects in Canada and Peru. This year, Oren plans to drill Sombrero, where targets have analogous features to the 10th largest copper mine globally. The company also plans to drill its other substantial base and precious metal opportunities that management believes will be complemented by the strongest bull market in commodities over the last 50 years. Visit AURYNresources.com and subscribe to keep up with the busy year ahead.